Amen. Take your Bible this morning and go ahead and turn over to John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 1. This week we're going to finish up this section of John chapter 1 that's called the prologue. It's a sort of extended introduction to the book. It includes a lot of the main themes that the book is going to expand on later on. But it's, it's written in a very dis- different style from what the rest of the book uh, looks like to us. It's, it's a lot closer to poetry or to songwriting than it is to sort of narrative or uh, uh, the, the sort of storytelling that's going to come later on in the book. It's not really a section of Jesus' teaching. It's not a story about him. It's the closest thing, I think we can come to it, to describing it well, is that it's sort of a song sung about him. And that helps us understand what John wants to do in us through this passage that he's written. I mean, you write a poem or a song not just to teach someone about something, but to move them. You write it so that they feel differently about that thing. And it's one thing in your American history class to read about the battles of the War of 1812. There's a certain kind of knowledge or understanding that comes from that kind of reading. But then it's another thing to sing what's become our national anthem, right? To sing, oh say can you see. To sing about bombs bursting in air. About the flag that's still there the next morning. Now, there's a couple challenges to us in connecting with what John has written in the way that he wanted us to connect. See, we, I, th- I think I'm on safe ground here to say that when we read a, a passage like this one, especially because what he's talking to us about is the incarnation of Jesus, the, the fact that the God who made us has become human, there are some huge barriers to us being moved by that teaching. I think one of the barriers is that it's very abstract. The idea of God in general is hard to get our minds around, much less the idea that that God, whatever he is, however you might want to define him, would become one of us, would enter into the history. But just just as troubling as how abstract it is, I think, is how familiar it is to many of us. I mean, many of us, I think, did grow up in Christian context where we were constantly being told that God came to us, that Jesus was God made flesh, and so the claim itself is very familiar. How many of you... Uh, to go back to the national anthem, how many of you even recognize that it's describing a battle that happened in a real war that real actual people fought? The claims of that song are lost on us because of the familiarity of it. And I think that passages like John 1 have a similar effect on us. We just don't think about the radical nature of these claims. They're too familiar or they're too abstract or they're too just fantastical for us to get to them. What we want is to have this passage land on us in the way John wanted it to land on us, which is to say that it would move us to feel something, to worship by it. But if we're going to worship, we've got a lot of work to do to cut through the abstraction and the familiarity. And what we have here is nothing less than the essence of Christianity. What we have in the verses we're going to look at this morning our Christianity boiled down to its essence. The claim that the God who made us has come to us, has become one of us, is the claim that, that branches Christianity off from Judaism, from everything that came before. It's the claim from which Islam has branched off of Christianity and Judaism. It is the lightning rod 
that separates Christianity from, from the other major monotheistic religions in our world. So we've got to connect with it. It's the key to worship as a believer. It's the key to conversion. If you're, if you're considering Jesus and you're trying to decide whether he's for you, coming to grips with this claim is the key for you in your journey to figure out what you're going to do with Jesus. So we, it, it, the stakes are huge here. But the deck is stacked against us. Ultimately, the only way we're going to connect with the beauty of this teaching in the way that John wanted us to if God, is if God's Spirit helps us. That's always true. That's why we always begin our time together in prayer. But I think we can take one step further. This is what I want to do this morning. I think there are three other things that, given the Spirit's power working in us, can help us to connect with the beauty of the incarnation, the beauty of the claim that Jesus is God come to us. Three things we can get out of verses 14 to 18 in chapter 1. Connecting with the beauty of the incarnation, worshiping God through this passage requires us to connect with the scandal of incarnation, to connect with the grace in this teaching about incarnation, and to connect with the goal of incarnation as this passage describes it to us. The scandal of incarnation, the the grace of the incarnation and the goal of it. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, I want to read our passage for us. So if you found that, please stand with me in honor of God's word to us. As I read from John chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I'm going to start with the scandal of incarnation. The scandal of incarnation. It's all through this passage. The problem is it's hard for us to see it. Again, it's too familiar to us. We're used to the idea that God might become one of us. Uh, Last year, maybe it was two years ago, uh, one of, one of the, uh, the world's leading New Testament scholars, a guy named N.T. Wright, came to Nashville and gave a little talk that I was able to be at. And one of the things that stuck with me about that talk was the way he described what it is to study the Bible. That New Testament studies, he said, is really just a branch of the study of history. And the study of history is all about empathy. It's all about trying to get yourself into the mind of someone else trying to understand what it would be like to be part of their world, to understand them on their terms. That's what historians do, and that's ultimately what New Testament scholars are trying to do, to enter into the world that produced these texts, to how to understand its values, what it, what it means by the words that it says, how this would have landed on those who first heard it. And that's the, that's the first task for us if we want to connect with the beauty of the claim that that God has come to us in Jesus, we've got to hear that claim in the way that those who first read this book would have heard it. We've got to enter their world, particularly the world of a first century Jewish person. And John has already told us in the passage we looked at last week, 
John's already told us that the word, the way he's referring to Jesus, that the word was God. And he's already defined what it means, what he means by God in pretty much the same terms that the Old Testament always uses to define what it means to be God. That he was there in the beginning. That means he's outside of everything you see. Everything we see wasn't at one time in the past and came to be. God stands outside of all that, above it. We've been told that he's the reason for everything, that through him everything that has been made was made, that the only reason anything has life is that it has life in him. He's defined what he means by the word being God in the same way that a Jewish person would have expected God to be described based on the Old Testament. John's picture goes right along with that view. John's readers, when they heard him describing the word, would have had Isaiah's book in their minds, probably. Just to take one example of what the Old Testament says about who God is. They would have read Isaiah. They would have heard it read, more likely. They would have remembered that early scene in Isaiah where Isaiah himself has a meeting with God in chapter 6 and where his immediate reaction to seeing God is, to, is feeling as if he's done for as if he cannot possibly live through the experience of seeing God in all of his holiness. He cries out, woe is me, I am undone. They would have read on that God sits above the earth, all of its powerful nations, even its kings. He sits above the earth and its inhabitants, the most powerful among them, look like grasshoppers to him. God is not of this world. That's what it means to be God. They would have read in Isaiah 43 that Everything passes away. That all flesh is just like grass. It, it sprouts up and it's there for a while, then it withers and it dies. But God is not like that. God is not flesh. God is. He just is. They would have read that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so far are God's ways and God's thoughts from ours in chapter 55. They would have read, they would have known in their bones by now, that God just doesn't belong here. In fact, to the people of Israel, that, that God was outside of our world, that, he, that he's defined by not being part of it, that his godness is tied up with him being other than us, that was the whole point for them. That's what set them apart from their pagan neighbors. Their pagan neighbors, their, their whole world was full of gods. Right? They believed that the, that the rain and the sea and the sun and and all sorts of, of natural resources that they depended on were inhabited by divine powers, that their, their gods were all over the place. To be Jewish was not to accept that view of God, was to insist that God is not in the world, but outside of the world. But John says that the Word, the Word who is God and was there in the beginning and made everything that is, actually became flesh. And when he says that in verse 14, the word flesh that he chooses was the most crude way he could have put it. He knew and intentionally chose that word. There are words that emphasize the beauty of the human body. It's, it's, um, it's capacities that are incredible and unmatched in creation. But he chose the one that was used to emphasize the body's weakness, its limitations, its corruptibility. God... The Word, who was God, put on flesh. John knows exactly what he's saying. The incarnation as an idea, again, is so familiar to us now that it's tough to see 
the shocking implications of what he's saying here. How it would have landed on those who read it for the first time. It's also just tough to imagine what it would be like. One of the things that we have to cut through, it's hard to understand just how scandalous this claim is, is that it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like for God to be made flesh. I think now, at least in the Christianized world, it just seems like we're entitled to God coming to us, that of course he became flesh. It's tough to imagine just how radical that claim is because it's tough to imagine what it would be like. Lewis, C.S. Lewis suggested trying to imagine yourself as a slug or a crab if you want to imagine what it would have been like to be God and then be limited in the way that he was. I think we can t- take an e- even one step further. A few years ago, there was a movie made uh, out of this really popular and, um, and well-written memoir called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Um, it's a foreign movie. I don't know how much play it got here. I think it won some sort of award. It was an incredible movie. It tells a story of a, of a French editor and socialite named Jean-Dominique Bobby. He's a man living the good life in Paris, top of the food chain in one of the great cities of the world for sensual pleasure, for the food and the music and, and all the things that, that Paris offers, and he had it all. Editor of Elle magazine, he was wealthy, had a lot of friends, had a lot of women. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, massive stroke. Wakes up from a coma 20 days later, trapped in a body that cannot move. He was, he was fallen prey to a condition called locked-in syndrome. I'm sure it has a more like, precise medical term for it, but that's what, they, that's what folks call it, locked-in syndrome. His mind was completely what it was before. Same guy, same active brain, same sense of himself, same memories, same ambitions, same desires, but completely trapped. He couldn't move at all. He couldn't hear very well. He could only see out of one eye. And he could only communicate by blinking that one eye. Now the story is interesting in itself just because this guy writes a memoir in that condition. Describing what it's like to be him. He writes by getting somebody to come and take down letter by letter what he wants to say. And they would just start with a chart and read off. A, B, C, D. And when they got to the letter he wanted, he would blink once with the one eye that he could use to work. And that's an incredible story just on its own. It's an amazing thing. But it's got me thinking about what it would be. When I came away, the experience I had in that movie was just sort of shock and awe at what it would have been to be this guy. To be trapped like that. To be limited. To have had what seemed like an almost unlimited life. To, To have that as part of his consciousness and then be limited in the most severest of ways. And it's got me thinking about what it would have been like to be the God who made all that is, who is defined by his separateness from our world. To take on a body in which he knew every limitation that any of us has always known. The image of, of Bobby is... Very different, obviously, from what John is claiming for the word. But he's 
he is claiming that God willingly went through something at least a little bit like that. That he went through something infinitely more humiliating. Have you ever thought of Jesus' experience like this? That Jesus, that, that, that Jesus was the God who made everything and now is subject to the laws that he himself set up. The Jews who first read John's account, they would have gotten it. They would have known that's what this meant. They would have known that what John was claiming for the word who was God was infinitely more humiliating than what Jean-Dominic Fabi experienced. They would have known they would have known that John is claiming that the one who is the bread of life, the same one who showered manna out of heaven to feed the children of Israel, now himself went hungry. They would have known that the the fountain of living waters, the one from whom water sprang out of a rock, the one who sends the rain to water the earth would go thirsty. They would have known that the keeper of Israel, the one who doesn't slumber or sleep, would grow tired. That the God who made the world and established all of its rules would be subject to them. He would get hot in the summer. He would get cold in the winter. He would be limited by gravity. When he jumped up, he would come down. They would have known that the unapproachable God, the God whose symbolic presence in the temple or in the Ark of the Covenant was death to anyone who touched it in an unworthy way. That this unapproachable God had become not just approachable, not just touchable, but mockable, but beatable. This God was spit on. This God had his beard plucked out. That the God who is life himself would be killable. That's exactly what John means when he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we won't see the beauty in the incarnation until we see this claim in light of of the scandal it would have been in the first century. We won't see it. We won't see the beauty in it until we get past the sense that, of course, God became one of us. The sort of modern Christian sense that this is the way it should be. Until we get past the sense that the Bible's just a fantasy book where anything can happen. Well, of course they're claiming that. I mean, ancient people were claiming that gods became flesh all the time. That's no, that's no big deal. That's nothing unex, unexpected. No, no, friends, on the Bible's own terms, this was a game changer. John was among the people who were the least likely in history to have said something like this. To a first century Jewish person, everything that they believed about God stood against the ability of that God to come to us in human form. Now, the real question is not, is not why should we care? Of course they thought this happened, but how do you account for the fact that someone who was conditioned by everything they had known and been taught so quickly came to worship this human that they had lived with as God? That's what needs explaining. John's explanation for this fact, the fact that he, a first century Jewish person who would never imagine God coming to the earth, is now worshiping a man that he knew intimately as God, his explanation for it, in verse 14, is that we have seen his glory. We have seen glory that is 
unlike anything else, glory that is only of the Father. John had seen something. Now, here's the ironic part. The ironic part is that John claims it's here. It's at this point where the God who made everything, whose glorious power is unmatched by anything in the world, that's unrestrained by anything else, that this same God gave all of that up, emptied himself of it, became human, limited, even killable, and that that place is where we see his glory. It's counterintuitive. But that's what John claims about the word. And this irony, that it's in his emptiness, in his humiliation, that we really see his glory, this irony takes us straight into the next theme that we've got to connect with in this passage. If we're going to really see the beauty of incarnation, if we're going to let it drill into us and start to change who we are, we have to see the grace of incarnation. The thing that shows God's glory, his godness, best is his supernatural grace. And his grace is seen in the incarnation more than it's seen anywhere else. Now, now let, me, let me point out to you how this passage, these four verses, five verses here, unfold along the, 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 the pattern of grace. And then we're going to spend some time sort of working into that. Verse 14 says that we beheld his glory. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. It's a glory that could only be God's. But then it offers another description. We saw his glory, that is to say, we saw him full of grace and truth. Where did we see his glory? We saw his glory in his grace. Verse 16 picks up the same thing. There's, there's that parenthesis in verse 15 about John and what he was saying about Jesus. We're going to come back there next week uh, because the next section of chapter 1 talks about John. But verse 16 picks up the line of thought from verse 14. My, my translation says, and from his fullness. It really should read for or because. That's what the original word was. It's, it's explaining something that's said in verse 14. So we've seen his glory. It's a glory that's defined by grace and truth. And now let me explain to you why we saw his glory there. For we have received directly from his fullness grace upon grace. What do I mean by grace upon grace? Verse 17. For, again, another explanation. We've received grace upon grace because for the law was given through Moses. There's grace number one. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's grace number number two. Grace upon grace. The point overall is that Jesus, more than anything else before or since, shows the glorious grace of God. A grace that has to be God-like. So what's going on here? Most, most folks that I read this week, trying to explain this passage, point to something sort of underneath the surface of the passage. Last week at the beginning of chapter 1, we talked about how he was sort of setting up the way he's describing Jesus based on Genesis chapter 1, where, where um, the author of Genesis had described creation, that Jesus and his development was taken back there to the beginning to show he was the one behind it all. Most folks think that this passage, verses 14 to 18, unfolds along the lines of another Old Testament text. One we won't take time to read because it's a little bit longer, but I want to at least point you to it. It might be a good thing for you to read this afternoon if you want to follow up on what you're hearing here today. Read Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34. 
This is the passage where Moses asked to see God's glory. And it's a bizarre one. It is so strange and mysterious. Moses asked to see God's glory, and what God tells him is that he can't see his glory and live. But as a concession, what I'll do is I'll stash you over behind this rock, I'll pass by you, and you can get a glimpse of my backside. You can take that much in. When he comes by Moses, what we receive in that passage is not some sort of really careful description of of what it looked like, you know, some sort of lightning flashes or, I don't know, bright light or whatever. What we get is what God said to him. His glory was revealed most in what God said about himself. His glory is attached to who he is, his character. And what he says hinges on his steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, he announces who he is to Moses and the description hinges on him telling Moses that he is steadfast in his love and he is faithful. And most, most people take this text that we're looking at, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, and say, okay, he's, he's referring back to that. You've got the same glory that Moses wanted to see. And then in, in John's grace and truth, it's basically John trying to translate the Hebrew that says steadfast love and faithfulness. Same ideas. He's basically quoting from it. And what he's saying is that, yeah, there was grace and truth shown in, in Moses. It was gracious of God to meet with him. It was gracious of God to give Moses and Israel a covenant that would allow them to have God among them, protecting them, providing for them, giving them security. That there was a grace to the law. But what that story goes on to tell, what the whole Old Testament tells in detail after detail, is that Israel fails to trust him. That they're constantly forgetful of him that they're cold towards him, that they love other options more than they love him. God showed them grace because he continued to give them kings and priests and temples, ways to account for the fact that they were sinful and still have him in their midst. And yet, time and again, they turn away from him and prefer other options. Now what John is saying is that in Jesus... We see this same grace, but we see it more. There was a grace in Moses and in the law and in God's continued faithfulness to Israel despite their sin. But where we really see his grace and truth, his steadfast love and his faithfulness, is in the fact that despite the way they had turned on him over and over again, his response to them was not to pull back, but to go further in. The way Jesus shows his grace and... with a clarity and a fullness that had never been known before is that Jesus represents God responding to the sin of his people by coming closer, by coming among them. Ultimately, that's just the beginning. He doesn't just come to them. He doesn't just come to live as a human, but the story John is going to tell us ends at the cross. God not just comes to people who had turned against him over and over again. He comes to them to give himself as a sacrifice for them, to take on himself the penalty of their sin. The glory of Jesus in John is tied not so much to the fact that he can turn water into wine or feed 5,000 people with just a couple pieces of bread and some fish. The glory of Jesus in John is attached to his death. It's at his death in chapter 12 that when the time has come, Jesus says, now 
the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify yourself in this. His glory is seen when he dies. That's what John means. The glory of God is never seen more clearly than when he looks least godlike but shows himself to be totally unlike us because his response to sin is more grace. His response to sin is to lay himself on the line. I don't know of a more striking image of this sort of grace than this sort of offhanded scene in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. It's one of the great novels of all time. And it's full of these little offhanded scenes, you know, that aren't really like moving the story along, but they're just really interesting descriptions of people. And there's this one of them that I won't ever forget where the main character is in a pub and he's talking to this guy who I'm going to call Marmeladov. And I'm going to call him that because I have no idea how to say these Russian names. It slows me down so much when I'm reading one of those because I can't help but say it in my head as I'm reading and I just stumble every time I come to one of those. But it's worth persevering. So we're going to go with Marmeladov. I have no idea. You can tell me if you're a Russian expert afterwards if I got it right. He's a pitiful character. It's pitiful. He's a drunk. And he's drunk away all of his family's money. And every time they come into anything, he drinks it away. And this scene is of him sort of describing himself and, um, and his family situation, hating himself, even while he continues these practices. He describes how, you know, having drunk away all of his family's rent money, the landlord comes into their apartment and beats up his wife while he lays there drunk, watching it, unable to do anything about it. His description, though, culminates when he starts talking about what his young daughter had done to provide for the family that he had completely failed. That she had turned not just to working, but to prostitution as a young and innocent girl. The scene describes in just vivid, unforgettable language what it was like for him to see this happen. Culmination of it, though, is what sticks with me. It's what helps me understand what it is for God to take this action for people like us who have turned against him over and over again. Marmeladov gets to near the end of his story and he says, he says, this very court he's getting drunk on as he's telling the story, this very court was bought with her money. 30 kopecks she gave me with her own hands, her last, all she had. She said nothing. She only looked at me without a word. That's grace. And that's a little bit like what John is claiming. The God who made us the God who we've turned on time and again has done in response to our sin. He hasn't pulled back. He's come further in. And he's laid himself on the line for us. It's only a faint reflection of what Israel's history shows and of what we live every day in our love for things more than we love God, in our coolness towards him, in our sadness that's not lifted by his promises 
in our joy that's much greater at the purchase of a new outfit or the outcome of a football game than at hearing that Jesus is for us. And yet he came knowing it all. Knowing exactly what he was getting and would get from us. He came and he's with us still. That's the grace of the incarnation. You'll never see it as beautiful unless you see it as gracious. And here's the last thing. We have to see the goal of the incarnation. It's all through these verses. We have to see the beautiful reality that's made possible by the scandal of God entering creation and giving himself for us. The beautiful reality that this makes possible, the goal of it all, was a personal connection to him. That we might know him. He came so that we could see him. That's verse 14. We have seen his glory directly. That's why he came. He came so that we could receive directly from him. That's verse 16. From his fullness. From all that makes him God. We have tasted directly. So that we could know him as we were made to know him. That's verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has exegeted him. He has explained him and given us a vision of him and given us a connection to him that wasn't possible before. And that's what it was all about. The beginning of verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. That's almost certainly a reference back to to Exodus chapter 33. To Moses, God had said, no one can see me and live. The Old Testament is full of examples of what this verse means, that no one can see God. We've already mentioned Moses on the mountain. God says, you can't see my glory and live. I'll show you a glimpse of my backside. And that experience transformed Moses' Moses' countenance. It was shining so that when he came down from the mountain in all of this mystery, he had to be veiled so that his people wouldn't be freaked out by what he looked like. It's in Isaiah 6 that we mentioned before. Isaiah seeing God and knowing he cannot survive this experience unless God is gracious to him. It's in God meeting with Job. We're told in Job of of this encounter that Job has with God and he comes as a tornado, as a whirlwind, as a devastating, deadly force. There's also the overwhelming and lethal glory of God's temple over and over again. It is not a safe place to be if you don't follow the rules. He is not approachable. He is not safe. That's what the Old Testament says over and over. But in Jesus, we see the prayer of the psalmist come to pass. It's the psalmist who had prayed in Psalm 17. Prayed for the day when... I will behold your face in righteousness and without fear and I will see you and be satisfied. To see him was to die. Now we're invited as children to taste of his fullness. Think of the image of a a president. Think of all the barriers that are set up between you and the president of the United States. The fences that surround the White House, the rope lines that let you get so close to him but only so close, the bodies that are constantly around him for protection. You are not worthy of his presence. That's the point that all of that, is, that, that, all of that pageantry makes over and over again. And in a sense, that's 
the point that the pageantry of the Old Testament was meant to make over and over again. But imagine the relationship that the president's children have to him. They run to him and he receives them. He receives them with open arms. They know him as he is. He's a source of comfort to them and joy. And what we're seeing in John chapter 1, what we'll see exposed for us throughout the book as he keeps developing this picture of Jesus, is that in Christ we have the way to the Father who becomes for us not death, but life in his presence. To see him was to die, now it's to live. That's what Jesus has made possible. A relationship with the one who made us. Consider the lengths to which he has gone to be with you. At what cost to himself has God come to you? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That son came telling us that he is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him but through him you come straight to the God who made you without fear. So the question for us is what will we do to engage with him? Think of what he has done to come to you and ask yourself, what will you do to engage with him? What cost is too high for you to pay? We're told that engaging with him looks like engaging with his word now. That's where he's accessible to us. That's where his spirit lives and breathes. That's where Jesus leaps off the page and into our hearts. What cost is too high for you to pay to meet with God in his word, to make that part of the rhythm of your life? Think on what he's done to come to you and ask yourself that question. Will you be among those to whom he came but was not received. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the beauty of the incarnation. Let's pray. Holy Father, there is no love that's like your love. It's only the coldness and hardness of our hearts that keeps us from the worship we were made to give you. And so what we pray for is that seeing this picture of Jesus by the power of your Spirit, which blows like the wind where it wishes, we will be melted in our hardness of heart and we would see you like you are. A God who made us, but has come to us, lives for us, welcomes us as children. We want to glorify you 
by our trust in you, by our satisfaction in you, by the joy that we know through you. So by your word, shape us, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.